Welcome to episode zero of this podcast that currently does not have a name at the time I'm recording this introduction. This episode is a condensed version of a conversation I did with Chris for my previous podcast, Respectably Loud, about a small selection of movies by Akira Kurosawa. The structure of this conversation won't necessarily reflect what our regular episodes will look like. For one, we'll be co-hosting instead of Chris being a guest on my podcast. But it does have some good film stuff in there, and we also give a good bit of our own history with movies as well. Chris also wanted it known that future episodes will likely feature him being, quote, a little more sober, unquote, which I trust Chris to manage as he sees fit. Enjoy. Our topic for today is the Japanese filmmaker Akira Kurosawa. He was yes. born, in, born in 1910 and he passed away in 1998. He has 30 movies that he has directed. Um, this, I... <laughs> There's like 10,000 different things we could probably say and people by people who are probably like way smarter than either of us. So uh, before we get in, do you want to just give me a quick summary of like how you got into Kurosawa? Yeah, uh, I'm so excited to talk about this because we've been planning this for months and months and months. Uh, For me, it, it, it started with... It, it it formally started with college and film school. I had taken a lot of film classes in college. We had uh, a, a very prestigious professor there, Arthur Lennig, who had done a lot of uh, books about the silent era and the sound era of um, American films and foreign films, and then had done a bunch of kind of film appreciation classes that I had taken part of. But that's where I was first exposed to uh Kurosawa, but before then I had been primed for it. Um, just the way that I had grown up was with nothing but uh, black and white Hollywood films of the 30s and 40s, and then the uh, the, the westerns of the 50s and 60s, particularly Howard Hawks and John Ford. My father was born in Germany uh, in 1950, came over in 1954 uh, at a time where Germans were not probably as well received. <laughs> Sure, sure. Uh, in America, uh, due to the war and everything else. And he had uh, a very bad stigma about coming here and not knowing the language. So uh, in order to kind of get up and running, he became obsessed with films from a very early age. Uh, so for him, he grew up on Earl Flynn and Cary Grant and Humphrey Bogart and John Wayne. So when I came around in the early 70s, uh, those were the films that I grew up watching. Instead of watching a lot of the 80s stuff, I grew up watching with my dad things like Casablanca and um, Stagecoach and things like that. So I had always been primed to love kind of black and white films from a very early age. And when I got to college, I got involved with this professor and we had a really great film library and and, and laser discs were in vogue there. And uh, he would often just say to us, you know, go down, watch some movies and then we'll, we'll talk about it afterwards. So I had gone down and it was at the time where Criterion was still putting out laser discs and our library had this huge collection. And uh, so they had things like 2001 and they had um, Antonioni's Blow Up was one of the other ones that I saw. And I had always heard about The Seven Samurai and I had always heard about it as the only thing I knew was that it was uh, the basis for The Magnificent Seven. So I had sat down and said, OK, well, I'll, I'll watch it and uh, and see if it reminds me of that film, because that was one of the films, too, that as a kid, I grew up watching incessantly with my father. Uh, and from that first moment up to I think the movie is about three and a half hours long. It was uh, it was 
it was an incredible experience. It was just one of those things where your eyes kind of get opened and you see this world that you were never exposed to before. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, I have been literally looking at this narrow sliver of light for like 22, 23 years. All of a sudden I can see the rainbow. You know, it, it, it's, it's, it's very similar probably to people who fall in love with the new, you know, musical genre or something like that. All, all of a sudden they get into metal or they get into who knows, EDM, whatever kids listen to now. Uh, it, 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 it was one of those moments where that was the film that all of a sudden sparked to me to say, holy crap, there is this veritable cornucopia of, of, of cinema out there that I not only don't know about, but can't even conceive of. And he was kind of the gateway to that. That's funny. Cause that's actually, I mean, obviously a lot of the the specific touch points are different, but there's two points in your story that super resonate with me. One, um, my, I mean, I've done two separate podcasts about star Wars, so this is not going to be any amount of surprise, but for me, Kurosawa for the longest time, Kurosawa was a footnote in star Wars trivia, which is essentially that I had heard that George Lucas, um, ripped off chunks of the hidden fortress, uh, by Kurosawa. And, um, and that was, and as deeply interested and inter- and life consuming as Star Wars was for me, I never decided to go. Oh, I should go watch this movie that's supposed to have inspired Star Wars so much. Um, so that's 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 one is like, oh, it's that thing that this is based off of. Um, and then two, uh, oh my goodness, I'm brain fretting on the second one, but uh, but but <laughs> no no sorry, this is what it was. It was that similarly my like my interest in film was super casual and entertainment based and it still is in a lot of cases but the possibility of movies as a art form and as a like as a as as there's a possibility to do something else uh with movies uh my gate well and also let's if i'm just being perfectly frank non-english movies uh my gateway to that was Kurosawa and it wasn't and I, and it was only because um some writers that I follow whose work I followed online when they were writing about video games decided to run a startup a a a separate website about movies and in one of their first features so I was like okay well I movies are fine I'll I'll read about your stuff about movies and then they one of their first features was comparing uh Yojimbo to uh a fistful of dollars and then also last man standing. So I, in terms of like, which, you know, what are the merits of each of the, the original of the remakes? And so I thought, well, and based on that completely sort of side approach, like I didn't have any interest in movies in that way, but they, the people who I was interested in, they said, Oh, you know, Kurosawa was a, you know, he's a legend. He's a classic. He does all these great stuff. So I tried it out and then, that sort of i mean i still don't have enough time to actually be a film nerd but that to me really sort of broke the seal in terms of any sort of preconceptions i might have had about you know movies that i weren't i wasn't already watching so yeah well i think i i think kurosawa is that for a lot of people because what's interesting about him is despite the length of the films i know we're going to talk about quite a few of them in this conversation but um he he has the ability to be very recognizable and appealing to western viewers and what i mean by that is people who are used to a much more american or western european style of 
cinema, but at the same time, and this is something that I really only come to know probably in the last 10, 15 years, is that as Western as his films appear to be, um, and we could certainly talk about it, we're going to talk about a, a, a few of them, how his films have been um, either based on Western books or plays or um, even Western movies, um, as Western as it seems to be, there's still a very deep Eastern Japanese um thematic kind of work at play particularly in yojimbo and and particularly in seven samurai which i know we're going to talk about and 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 high and low which not a lot of people know was based off of um an incredible book by one of my favorite authors of all time which is why i picked to talk about it so i can talk about him as well um as western as the concepts and the tenets are of the overall plot he it, it, once you kind of get a little older and, and you start to kind of see these things a number of times and certainly as you start to read about it a little bit more. There's a lot of um, Eastern concerns and 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 concerns that that were very prevalent at the time that the films were being made, that are are only just revealing them, you know, to me now. And I've watched Seven Samurai now uh, for over 20 years. It, you know, I'm in my 40s now. I watched it when I was 23. So, I mean, I can't count the number of times that I've seen it either in total or just partial pieces. And it still surprises me each time the things that I find out as I watch it. Well, I was going to say that like the, I, you and I both, I think, share a similar, and I, and you mentioned that there's probably not an uncommon reaction that for people, Kurosawa acts as a sort of a gateway um, outside of you know the stuff that we're used to seeing in terms of movies. Um, and I and just in and and again, like there's probably way more scholarship on this than I can probably hope to to go for. But even seeing some notes like apparently Kurosawa was criticized for being too Western, and I suppose that like to me that is i can i guess i could understand that but to me that's actually a benefit uh and not a not a criticism because it allows me to um it, it it again it was the thing that allowed me to get over any sort of preconceived notions i had about movies that were specifically made in either in america or in english or that kind of stuff and it sort of allowed me to go deeper into um things that i had previously considered less accessible um and but then also hit the criticism of him being too western is is funny for the reason that you mentioned was that he also does have a lot of japanese themes going on and also his <laughs> The stuff that he did is also hugely influential back into Western culture. So people say, oh, you're too influenced by, you know, American film or American culture. It's like, well, I, I can't tell you one way or the other if that's true. But it is, I mean, whether or not people are, how much people know about it, a lot of, you know, Western films were actually really influenced by, in, in turn by Kurosawa. Absolutely. Yeah. In the 20 years uh, before when we started talking about this, uh, we had come up with a list of uh, six movies, three each that we wanted to present as being ones we wanted to talk about. And I won't lie, I forgot who suggested who. So uh, <laughs> I, I have the list. Let me see if I still I, I had the list. Let me see if I still have it. I believe I chose High and Low. Okay. Akiru. And I might have chose Seven Samurai. Okay. I think you chose Rashomon, mm -hmm. Yojimbo, mm -hmm. and Ron, if I'm not mistaken. That that seems entirely right? that seems entirely plausible, and I won't think about it more than that. Um, <laughs> I will. Do you want to do them chronologically? 
Yeah, we can do them chronologically if you remember the chronological order. I know what the most recent is. Yeah. <laughs> and I know what the second most recent is. Uh, but you'll have to refresh my memory. Uh, we, we did Rashomon. Probably Rashomon's the first. Yeah, I actually organized my uh, my movie notes uh, in chronological order. So I actually do have the order here. So um, the, the first one is Rashomon. So there you go. some quick uh some quick facts uh to get out of the way before we get to the fun stuff it came out in 1950 uh it stars and there's gonna be some names here that show up almost every single damn time uh which is definitely a thing to note when we're talking about kurosawa is the number of actors that just keep on showing up uh the main i mean the biggest name i think tends to be toshiro mufune um we also have uh machiko in in rashomon specifically we also have machiko kyo masayuki mori and takashi shimura which is another name that will show up almost in all of these movies um oh and i'm just gonna say up front if i can't pronounce if i butcher these pronunciations i apologize greatly it's uh i'm i'm gonna do my best but um, this movie is based on the short story in a grove by Ryunosuke Akutagawa. Oh, that, that was, that was a tricky one. Um, <clears throat> if you haven't seen them, I mean, we'll do the plot summaries, um, as best we can. If you haven't seen the movies, I mean, I've never thought of Kurosawa movies as being especially like spoiler driven or it's, so we'll try and do a bit quick summary of each. Um, but ultimately, you know. You should just go see them. Uh, uh, Rashomon starts um, with a woodcutter, a priest, and a commoner uh, all meeting together underneath a city gate to stay dry while it's pouring outside. And while they're sort of just hanging out doing nothing, they start telling this story um, that they had heard about a trial of a murdered samurai. Um, They hear the various testimonies from the different people involved, and the stories contradict each other. And really, the only thing that they have in common is that the samurai is dead um and it is a it's a mystery in the sense that you're trying to sort out sort through who is telling the truth and sort of what parts contradict each other um and even the i think it's the woodcutter who found the samurai so he is actually sort of a a witness after the fact even even his even his story isn't entirely a hundred percent truthful so that's supposed to be the version that is like the most reliable but it's even established that even he's kind of lying at least in some part um and so the movie doesn't really have a resolution in terms of getting to the absolute bottom of it i mean you can make arguments by the way but it's it's super open to debate um and that it kind of there's a small little bit of light at the end, but it's mostly a dip, like a super down movie about how we're all terrible people and there's that truth is subjective and we don't know about anything about anything. Is that is that fair? Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that's really fair. And and right. So I, th- I think at the time, this was the film that brought Kurosawa really to uh, prominence with the rest of the film world. Right. I think this one uh, was it the Golden Lion uh, when it came out. It, it had won a bunch of uh, at accolades uh but really it's 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 almost hitchcock in, in the fact that this is it's it, it's four stories all of all, all four different versions of the truth all are unreliable you know so you have four unreliable narrators telling you th- this story and at the end there's no handholding. It, it 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 leaves it for you to kind of make up your mind as to how you want to interpret the the conflicting viewpoints, and it's it it's gorgeous. One of the things that I loved about Kurosawa, and it's 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 prevalent right in the beginning of the film, is his ability to shoot out in location. So there's very little in the way of. Um, studio work and stage work and if you think back to a lot of the stuff in in america in the 40s and the 50s um ford had you know really come to prominence especially with things like stagecoach shooting out in in, out outdoors and really getting the 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 mountainscapes of like sedona and arizona and california but here in a kurosawa i think one of the the the, the big shots that they show in in the beginning is the camera kind of gliding through the trees and you see the light kind of dappling through the leaves and, and, and the way that that light plays as we see the samurai come with the woman and, and then eventually Mufune as the kind of the, 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 the scoundrel, the thief, whatever you want to call him for this. It's, it, 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 it's a gorgeous moving film, which for the time I think was shocking. And, and what started the whole kind of, he's too Western for our tastes, right? Cause at the time he was really being compared to other Japanese artists like, um, and I'm going to butcher this name. I'm already a couple glasses of wine in. Um, Ozu, I'll just go by his his last name, Ozu, who is another fantastic Japanese director. Um, things like Floating Weeds and Tokyo Story, Late Afternoon, um, uh, Late Fall, rather, Early Spring, one of those. <laughs> but he was very known for very stationary camera work, very poised, very um, uh, uh, static shots where nothing was moving and uh, spectacular kind of use of, of framing. And here's Kurosawa immediately outside, running through the trails, running through the grass, running through, 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 through trees. You see this time and time again on the later films that we'll talk about as well. But it's there right as early in 1950 with 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 Rashomon and it's startling to kind of see and and uh when it so you mentioned that this came out this was sort of his breakout film and I and that that seems to I think that matches up with what I read so I'll 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 go with it the it, it I noted that it was um it showed up on the uh Venice Film Festival in 1951 and sort of like because there was someone who was championing it and sort of and it seemed that a lot of people also responded to um the philosophical um heart of the movie which tried to touch on like you know what does it mean to have you know what what does it mean to not ha- or have access to the truth or not have access to the truth and is it possible like is there any possibility of discovering what the truth is outside of a person telling you what it is um and that and that to me is like and I always like that at the end of the movie, the part that is supposed to make you feel better is that the um is that one of the people after all these things happen and everyone's depressed, um, they find an abandoned baby and someone 
and, and one of the people takes it and says, I'll take care of it. And that's meant to be, well, okay, maybe there's some potential hope for us because that person did a nice thing by taking care of this abandoned baby. But that is completely unrelated yeah. to, it's completely unrelated to the, the central question of, that the movie is trying to ask. So it's like, we, 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 we can't, we can, like this, there's this big giant, like, ugly elephant in the room and we can't really deal with it so instead here's this other thing so you don't feel terrible <laughs> yeah and it, you know what if i it, i think it was raining the whole time right because the movie opens in this terrible downpour and at the end it stops raining i mean there are some things like that where it's yeah the ra- yeah the rain uh, stops yeah you can argue right it's not particularly subtle but it, it's just it, it's such a wonderful movie and since since you had mentioned it before with the cast and and these two people in particular are going to count. Oh, they're going to carry through. I think the entire time we talk until the very last film um, to share M- M- is, is the bandit. He's, he's the thief and he is just, again, one of the things that kind of blew me apart when I watched this for the first time, being so used to the Hollywood studio thirties and forties film. That is a very, um, specific style of acting and a lot of people kind of make fun of it but it was a very specific style for the time um and then you watch this and you see Tashiro Mifune and the dude is a he is an animal and the second he is on the screen you're just like oh 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 <laughs> this guy has has got it he's got it in spades uh it doesn't matter who you are man woman child whatever your affiliation or orientation this dude is electrifying and charged up and he and and he carries that through the entire the his entire career um and i'm sure we're going to talk about him a lot but for my money uh i, I am such a huge fan of takashi shimura uh and he he's he's the focus of 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 the next film in the order and he's he's my favorite character from from seven samurai here i think he's the woodcutter if i, I think so yeah if i recall right yeah I, 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 he is the exact opposite of Toshiro mifune where where mifune is this physical beast he is this this prowling carnivore uh and shimura is the exact opposite and yet somehow is able to hold the frame in just a commanding just as commanding a fashion as mifune is um and it's so great to see them both here they had done films t- together before as well they were in stray dog together uh quiet duel i think they're in together before this but this is probably the first film maybe stray dog which i think came out a year or two before uh where they really you really notice them as holy crap these guys can hold a screen and can hold it as long as they choose to it's just too phenomenal in in a sea of phenomenal performances in this film these two guys are just powerhouses and it's amazing to watch as we kind of go through the next 15 years or so with, with them, how they kind of continue on. And uh, yes, I, I, the more that I, you know, the more of his, of Kurosawa's movies that I watched, like uh, Mifune is the more obvious, like attention grabber in terms of just his performance. But I, like you, I'm starting to like really appreciate Shimura um, and his more reserved, like, like, I'm not sure if he's he plays the sort of smarter, more like thoughtful, introspective, wise person in all the movies. But like that seems to be like that. Like, I just like it whenever he's in a movie, like anytime he shows up, yeah. I'm just super psyched to to see him. Um, 
Yeah, and he's in and and he's in Godzilla. I, we, we're not going to talk about it, but uh, he's in the he's the star of the original Godzilla. So uh, if you've seen that, you've probably seen this guy. If you've seen no Akira Kurosawa films, you probably have still seen Takashi Shimura. <laughs> and 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 before we move on, you had also mentioned like that the 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 me- the visual metaphor is like the rain stopping or the um. Or the the sun like the sun through the trees, uh, those those aren't especially subtle uh, metaphors. But uh, as someone who never really grew up, you know, uh, trying to examine films on those levels, it 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 got down. It was noticeable enough that even I was like, hey, that seems like a metaphor. Uh, and so I uh, I appreciate that. next film is Akiru, which I I believe, I remember was on your list. Um, I like it too, but uh, it is. Uh, this one came out in 1952 and stars uh, Takashi Shimura uh, as our lead and also Miki Odagiri. Um, it seems partially inspired uh, by Leo Tolstoy's The Death of Ivan Illich. And Chris, I think this is your show. Why don't you take it from here? Yeah, so so there are a couple of things that really stand out about this movie. This is to me it's one of Kurosawa's warmest movies even though again he story-wise you know it doesn't end in the traditional kind of western happy place but as far as humanism as far as some of the themes that appear again and again in kurosawa films this to me just kind of epitomizes everything that is excellent about him as a filmmaker as a study of humanity as a as a student of of life uh and again it 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 doesn't hurt that it stars one of my favorite actors to Takashi Shimuro um as this kind of uh, he's uh he's kind of I, I I'm I'm struggling to remember what he is at this point but he's just like a pencil pusher yep. he's a bureaucrat uh there's there's really not a particularly nice person. Um, and he finds out that he has terminal cancer and because of the life that he has lived as this kind of rude bureaucrat, no time for family, no time for love. It's nothing but business. Uh, once he finds out that he has this terminal disease, uh, it affects a change in him, but in true kind of human fashion, um, and this is what's so wonderful about the movie, just because it affects a change in him, not everybody else is all of a sudden receptive to that, you know, and he 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 struggles to kind of um, make a point to, to, to leave a lasting mark now that he knows he's going to die and he kind of settles on um you have to help me with this. It's it's been a while. Uh, he 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 kind of settles on uh, building a like a like a little park. There's this disgusting. Uh kind of like wretched place that he, he, he it's like sewage nice or like something yeah, like that, it's yeah. like it's, it, it's just like a drainage ditch kind of area and uh, he kind of makes it his goal to kind of 
leave something behind there that people can use and and hopefully remember him by and uh and it it just kind of it 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 kind of goes through what happens and he and he dies and leaves this place and it's just kind of like oh okay uh you know there's not a lot of fuss about it it's not like oh if only we had you know cherished him while he was alive it has nothing to do with that because it 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 never actually um forgives him for for how he was before he got the cancer and that was one of the things that really struck with me about this movie um because in a hollywood version of this it would you know and then he did this thing and all of a sudden everyone realized what an amazing person he was and in akiru it's very different uh it is very inward it, it's very in, internal there's a beautiful scene that um if you know any scene from the movie at all it's him sitting on a on on a swing in the snow by himself just kind of coming to grips with what he's done and the fact that he comes to grips with the mark that he has made and how he has changed himself is enough and the movie doesn't ask for anything more than that um it it ends after his death so he dies and we we see that life goes on and the business is still going there's like a little you know plaque of him there and and uh, people realize that hey there's a there's a new kind of park where this disgusting drainage dish used to be but it's not huge and it does it's not life changing it's just this one little piece and it's one of the things that i am drawn to more and more Instead of the large gestures in his films, I'm drawn to the smaller gestures. And this is a movie that is all about the smallest gesture. And even though it doesn't mean a lot to a lot of people, the the act of the gesture itself is what matters. And I think that's what Akiru tries to show. And and that I, I like that the way that the movie ends, there's there's a personal ending for him where he does he is able to sort of even if it's on a like it's not an especially huge scale um his goal of building a park to so kids can play in he manages to accomplish that and he feels like you know that there's some measure of success and some meaning to his life and then he passes away but then and so in that part that's like it's it's more muted and practical than necessarily your typical hollywood ending but it's 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 feels good and then you get to the last part of the movie which is all of his fellow bureaucrats sort of reflecting on uh after his funeral and they not only um they not only just things are going on as usual but when they're talking about the park being built up like they 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 actually go out of their way to sort of downplay um Shimura's uh involvement in the thing because <laughs> oh, yeah. they because they they don't only really say like yeah he's, he's he passed away but like he's like oh no like there's no way that one person could have done this all by himself that's just myth making and legend like it's they, they like i mean and and most of the time that would actually be true like they're not necessarily it's not necessarily done out of spite. It's just that in that bureaucratic world, nothing happens, right? That's the whole point of the movie. And so he's able to do this kind of breakthrough and do this really cool thing. And at least for himself, but then everyone else is like, no, he didn't do that. That, that there's a whole bunch of like, it's, it's the system, the system works and, and gets this stuff done. He had, he didn't have much to do with it. And, and I was like, oh man, that is so crushing to end your movie on. It is. 
it is but then at the same time right so i it 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 kind of we should say that uh, so the 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 title akiru um in japanese means to live so one of the things that has been talked about and there's a great author donald ritchie um he's written a number of books he's done a lot of commentaries for kurosawa films really what the ending of the film is is different than what the intent of to live is right so so for for shimura it, it, the the fact that he got this park here that that's really where the payoff occurs which is which is why i kind of love the movie it it is it is very personal it's very internal there are no larger ramifications in fact the outside world to your point at the end they downplay it um because it, that's not where the 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 impetus to live is for them, right? So yeah. it, it was it was always internal for him. This this was always a very personal internal struggle. The fact that he succeeded is enough. There doesn't need to be the larger ramification of everyone else acknowledging it. Yeah. It's enough that he was able to acknowledge that he did it, and that's where it ends and it's such a wonderful kind of sting by kurosawa to not end it there but to end it to your point with the bureaucrats completely downplaying what he had done and and that's a you know and and i think that's why as western as he is claimed to be that's a very time and time again if if you look at the films and it happens in kurosawa's seven samurai it happens in yojimbo um it 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 plays a bit here <clears throat> class was always something that he was very um aware of and something that he wanted to call out time and time again it, it happens in high and low For as sure. well um uh, you know so the fact that the the thing that he achieved was not for the class of people that he was a part of and i i think there's a beauty there of being a part of this class system for so long having this terminal disease hit you make you aware of you know really needing to leave an impact on the world and the impact might not be on the world that you came from it's on the world that you finally start to acknowledge and i think akira is a beautiful example of how you can do that in a narrative story um uh and 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 not take the sappy way out for sure um do you want to move on to seven samurai Because my wallpaper just changed to a picture of the Seven Samurai, I think it's only fair that we talk about one of the greatest movies ever. Of made. course, and if if the first two movies sound a bit um, uh, esoteric or perhaps not as immediately gripping, this is uh, Seven Samurai is going to fix you real good. It came out in 1954, and there's a huge cast list, but again, our two favorites, Mifune and Shimura, are back for this one. Um, this movie has been remade a whole bunch of times, including The Magnificent Seven, twice, and and one of my personal favorites, A Bug's Life. So, you know, it's, you know, there's a wide range of uh, ways that this story can be interpreted. Um, I think this one was also yours. 
Yeah. So, uh, but now I have to ask because I'm trying to think through. So, obviously, in the Magnificent Sevens, Yul Brenner plays the Shamora role, and then Denzel Washington plays the Shamora role. So, in A Bug's Life, is the Dave Foley bug? Is he the Shamora role? I want to. Oh. I want to say he is. It, and it, is there a Mufune role? Oh in man, a Bugs Life? I don't know. Man, I didn't think I should have. I it didn't occur to me to prepare for this by watching a Bug's Life. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Seven Samurai. This is uh, this is just a ripper of a movie, man. So long story short, the, um, there is a small village that is raided by bandits. And they raid them of all their their foods and grains, and they say, we're going to come back at the end of the harvest, we're going to leave you alone till you get more food, and then we will return. So right away, Akira sets up a ticking clock, and he says, okay, we've raided you once, when the harvest is ready, we're going to raid you again. And it's framed within those two time periods. So in that time period, the villagers decide, we have to hire samurai to come and defend the village. That is the long and short of the story. It seems very simple. Farmers go out, they hire seven samurai, the seven samurai come to defend the village. What's amazing about the movie, besides the fact that it has amazing fights and the battle at the end, I think is 45 minutes long. Um, And it, it has the pacing and the action of a cowboy movie, even though this is still very much an Eastern made film. Uh, What's amazing about it is again, even though, based on what you may know of The Magnificent Seven and based on what you may know of A Bug's Life, no one here is without fault. No one here is without blame. That includes the villagers, that includes the samurai, and that includes the bandits. And it's amazing how over the course of a couple of hours, as we wrangle together these seven samurai, all who joined for different reasons, all who are fully fleshed out characters, all who have these incredible arcs, uh, for the most part, um, it's amazing to watch who you think is amazing and good, you start to see the cracks. Who you think are poor and desperate, you start to see that they are stronger than you have given them credit for. And things constantly turn around and turn around where you are constantly upended in your expectations as to what is happening as far as characterizations, as far as um, uh, impetus to action. And then all of that is just just ground up in an amazing samurai story. So I mean, there's not much more to say than that. There's so much going on. Where do you even well, start? Well, okay. So the the thing that the thing that again, it's been a long time since I've uh, since I watched this, but uh, the thing that I that stands out to me and like because again, you mentioned that there's definitely shades of gray, but like you can. Yeah, at least as a base, identify who you're rooting for and who you're rooting against. It's 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 not absolutely so morally ambiguous that you kind of hate everyone. Um, There's no terrible betrayals. Right. The samurais don't become terrible right. villains or anything like that. No, but, absolutely. But within that, um, Mifune's samurai is. I mean, at a certain he's kind of the comic relief, right? And he's uh, or he's sort of like not quite as highly regarded as everyone else. And he, at a certain point, he has a moment where um, the villagers give the samurai some samurai armor that they just happen to have lying around. But the samurai very quickly realize that they have either killed or at least looted um, 
other samurai and so this they have armor that doesn't belong to them and they get really pissed off and that's when mifune comes around who is like again not as you know hasn't been as is kind of the straggler um comes but comes along and basically says that hey if these villagers have this stuff um it's because the samurai came here uh and the samurai are responsible for a ton of destruction and death across everyone and then also makes the personal reveal that he was not actually like has no nobility in his blood or anything that he was uh you know he he grew up a villager like everyone else and his family were killed by samurai and that he sort of sort of was able to ascend or transform or fake or however, like whatever the mechanism was, he was able to basically fake his way into becoming a samurai. And, and at that point, the Shimura, who's the leader of the group and everyone else just sort of takes a step back and is like, Oh, you're kind of right. Like they don't, they don't flash out at him. They don't lash out at the villagers. It's, it's, it's a moment of like, Oh, that's a very that's a very interesting point you just made. Um, and they're able to sort of, okay, yeah, well, like it, it sort of sets them off and sort of diffuses the the conflict that they have. Even though nothing we've seen in those specific people suggests that they are as monstrous as the samurai referenced, but like it does being like, oh yeah, these other samurais haven't treated you well, so maybe yeah, okay, that's fair. And they just sort of, it's a moment of complexity and humanity that would i mean it would might not survive in a uh let's say a, a different kind of movie yeah and it's uh it, it, i mean it just speaks to uh again nothing is cut and dry there are no heroes there are no pure heroes there are no pure villains everything is in shades of gray right we noticed that um the villagers did this but they also did some other things out of mistrust you, you know when they get there there there's a distinct lack of women and children in the village and the samurai don't know why and and you find out the reason why later on um and it all feeds into because of the past action of samurai in the past so even though we have these amazing archetypes these these heroes that come to kind of save the day there's an acknowledgement of the past and there's an acknowledgement of class constantly in this movie as well that that Kurosawa will not let rest and 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 that that transcribes to all the other films we samurai were above villagers and samurai could do what they want to villagers and and Kurosawa takes them to task in that moment. It's uh, it's interesting because my favorite character in this movie is, of course, Shimura, who plays kind of the head samurai. So if you know the Magnificent Seven, he's the Yul Brenner character. He has the single greatest opening of any hero ever. I you you can put him up against to me any movie, your Star Wars is your 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 anything else. There is no hero introduction like the introduction to Takashi Shimura in The Seven Samurai where he saves a baby from a villain by doing Something to Western viewers as simple as disguising himself as a monk going into a hut and and killing a bandit and saving this young baby. But in samurai time, and if you're an Eastern member, one of the things he does to achieve his disguise is he cuts off his top knot. If you know anything about samurai and you know anything about their top knots, to cut off your top knot is is not something to be done lightly. But Shimura does it because a young child's life is at stake and he does not hesitate. This is what he has to do to save this child's life. He does. He is 
to my mind, one of the most noble heroes ever to grace the silver screen. Um, and then on the opposite end of that is Toshiro Mofuni as, to your point, the clown character. Um, cut. Kachichiro, if I'm saying his 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 name right, uh, he, he is a drunkard. He just follows along. He's got a sword that is larger than him, uh, and they don't want him, but he follows anyway. And he is pretty much the comic relief up until that moment that you stated. And it's a credit to Mufune how in that moment when he kind of breaks down and he rails against the samurai to I- explain, you know, who are you to criticize these people for the weapons that they have they have these weapons right to your point because the class of samurai treated these people like nothing and they took what they wanted and they did what they wanted and you know the 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 villagers defended themselves that moment is such a twist and even though mufuri continues to be kind of a comic character you in that one moment in that one bit of dialogue and that one bit of incredibly expressive and emotive acting your heart spins in a 360, in a 180, whatever degree you would like to use to connote some type of change of heart. And all of a sudden you are fully invested in what everyone is doing by this, by this act of acknowledgement of past sins. That is the thing that makes you truly invested in what these guys are here to do and, and, and how everyone is going to kind of band together to, um, to, to help save this village, whether they do or not. And, 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 and who survives is kind of the crux of the last 45 minutes of the movie it is probably one of the single most concentrated action-packed 45 minutes i've ever seen in film and and it's just breathtaking there there is so much that goes on here uh that has been drawn from other films the strong silent faster than anybody else alive kind of archetype that's from this movie you know the cheerful you you know person who will kill you you know in a split second that's from this movie uh the last stand and rallying kind of villagers get together let's let's do this that's from this movie this is the movie from which to my mind all other action epics aspire to be and 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 take from i don't think we could uh i can't really add anything to that very very eloquent and on point point so and and slightly inebriated i'm not gonna lie (laughs) dude i (laughs) it 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 does my soul well to hear you say these things so i'm 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 totally cool um next up is jimbo came out in 1961 it was written by kurosawa and a guy named ryuzo kiki kikushima and i just realized i didn't write down the other writers names oops oh well um and uh, returning again is Toshiro mafuni and takashi shimura and for the first time uh at least in the course of these movies that we're talking about specifically tetsuya nakari who is Another one of who also shows up uh, in a bunch of Kurosawa movies and at least two others here. Um, Nikati is is definitely a again, he's not someone you always think of, but he's definitely one of my favorites. And he often plays he often he often plays sort of like 
more outlandish psychotic types uh which but he does it so well it's so much fun to watch um the the um the author dashiell hammett is supposed to uh his books the glass key and red harvest are both are supposed to have been influential on kurosawa in writing this one um but then in a fun twist of fate uh yujimbo actually uh ends up being like another huge uh influence back onto west movies specifically spaghetti westerns um because sergio leone's like the man with no name trilogy the ones with clint eastwood um that basically all draw inspiration from from yojimbo and specifically and like and fistful of dollars is is essentially a remake of yojimbo um yep absolutely the 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 plot here if you again if you've seen like again like we can use movies that other people have probably seen as reference points, but essentially a uh, samurai played by Toshiro Mifune. And it, this is something I actually I haven't thought about. We haven't talked about, but like these are the first of these are in my case, these are the first samurai movie I'm watching. And so to hear the way that they, a lot of Kurosawa's samurais act are, did, that seems fine to me, but apparently like, these people are like a lot supposed to be a lot more honorable and less disreputable. <laughs> and so it was something of, it was supposed to be something right. of a, like an actual, like weird, like rebel move for Kurosawa to have all these samurai who don't have masters and are perhaps, uh, less bound by honor codes. Right. So, so right. An important part to make is, um, Mufune plays a samurai, but he very specifically plays yeah. a ronin, right? Which is a masterless samurai. So he is very much that kind of um, kung fu man with no name, wandering the earth, looking for adventure in this particular. And movie. he, uh, and like at a certain point, they get like someone asks him his name, and he gives them one. But it's, but he's also just gives them the name of the thing he's looking at at the time. So it's, it's not, uh, yep. it's, it's fairly. It seems obvious that it's that he's not supposed to have a name that we're we're to know of anyway. So yeah, so I I actually wrote that down. The one thing that I took the only movie I took notes on yes. was Jojimbo when I watched it. And apparently this is how far along we've been trying to do this. The notes I took were on March fourth of twenty seventeen, and uh, his name means thirty year old blueberry field. <laughs> sure why not um but he's 40 years old i i don't know i have that note there as well i don't know why i'm sure it's in the movie <laughs> so Tashiro mafune plays a, a ronin uh who um comes across a town that and and the, the introduction to the town well first there's a scene where uh someone's off to go to the town and his parents are yelling at him and saying oh you're gonna get into trouble and because there's nothing good going on there and that sort of peaks uh Mifune's interest and as he's going approaching the town there's this fantastic shot of a dog running down the road with a severed human hand just for no reason and there's these like upbeat like almost xylophone sounding thing music playing underneath it it's like the music is yeah. what makes it yeah so uh Masaru Sato um is the composer for this and yeah as weird as it is to see a dog kind of cross the street with a severed human hand when you hear the music that accompanies it it just makes it perfect and you know, for sure and this and it, i mean this sort of tips you off like this is going to be like this is a movie with with action and 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 cleverness but this is like this is a lot more this is a lot more lighthearted and this is a this is a, a I mean, dare I say comedic uh, kind of a movie, even though there are real stakes and Mufune definitely gets the crap kicked out of him uh, 
almost fatally uh but it's uh it's it's i think even more like i think we're Seven Samurai goes for gigantic epic. This movie tends to go for, you know, a fun action adventure romp. And we're going to make some jokes and uh, kill a bunch of fools. Um, But when he gets to this town, uh, he very quickly finds out that there's basically two rival factions that are sort of both terrible and both awful and both essentially destroying the town with their badness. And so he... And it's, I mean, I don't think we have a time to really dig into it too much, but essentially through a bunch of trickery and manipulation and the occasional murder, um, he manages to get both sides to essentially kill each other. And the movie ends with him badly injured, but alive. And the town is more or less saved. Does that sound right? It does sound right. So uh, a couple of things just to kind of bring up. If you're following along the Kurosawa discography that we usually talk about music here, but the filmography, uh, this is the first time, at least from the films we're talking about that he goes widescreen. Uh, so er everything up to this point had been kind of the Academy ratio, the 133 or 137 aspect ratio. This is where Kurosawa, at least in our, our filmography that we're talking about goes widescreen. Now he goes real widescreen. We're talking, I think this is, 235 if i'm not mistaken and one of the things that he is fantastic at and it's really shown in this movie is the way that he frames within the frame so if you're not familiar with aspect ratios um two two 235 is very very rectangular so we all have widescreens now tvs that that widescreen ratio is about a 185 which is typically what cinema is done in the movie theaters nowadays. So 235 is, is a very thin rectangular bar. So you get a great scope when you're looking at landscapes, when you're doing kind of wide shots. Uh, but when you're doing more close-ups and stuff, you have a lot of empty space. So one of the things that Kurosawa does, and it's really noticeable in Yojimbo is the way that he frames things. So one of the great things about this, this movie, if I sound knowledgeable again, it's because the, this is the only movie I actually took notes of. There are a lot of close, ups in this he he really uses the frame perfectly this is a guy who can master any aspect ratio if you look at the prior films that are in that box ratio he's constantly filling the screen and making things in interesting dude wants to slip to widescreen he can do that as well if you'll look you'll see a lot of things where there's frames within frames so you'll see figures standing in doorways you'll see figures standing within shutters since this is a movie about kind of two two sides of a town at war with each other um he and he uses the the architecture of the town to frame the shots uh there's a lot of just kind of interesting camera angles a lot of um depth of field depth deep focus things orson wells did it in citizen kane kurosawa is doing it here as well toward the end when we have the final showdown between um sanjuro who is the Mufune character and our, our, our bad guy, whose name you're going to have to say again, because I know you love him, John. Who is that guy? The guy with the gun. Oh, right, the, right, right. Uh, uh, it's uh, Nakati. In, in the kimono. Nakati. Right. Uh, Tatsuya yeah. Nakati. 
when when we have the the final showdown there, uh, his Mufune's kind of um, not partner, but the person he's been the most friendly with in the town has been strung up. So there's this kind of showdown in the center of town, and it's an amazing shot with the guy who's being strung up kind of in close up, and you see the bad guys in the far end. Just the way that Kurosawa uses the camera, uses the frame to tell the story is masterful. Probably in Yojimbo better than any of the movies we talked about. It's a masterclass in how to freaking use the frame to it's, it's, it, it's, it's fullest intent to tell your story and make it work within the narrative. It's, it's just an amazing and, film. And, and there's a, there's a, I know that there's a version of this in, uh, or they, they, they try to replicate this idea in a fistful of dollars, but you know, in the movies that I have seen, I, there has never been to me at least a, a movie where a single gun is more impactful or revelatory. Like when Nikati pulls out uh, his gun and that's like, like that, that changes the game. Like everyone else has, you know, this is a samurai movie. So everyone has swords and, you know, fighting with swords. But when he pulls out that gun, you're like, Oh shit. He's good. He's got a fucking yeah. gun. <laughs> <laughs> and the way he pulls it out too i mean there is nothing it, people listening to this if you do nothing else go to youtube and look this up I, it is it is at once effeminate sneaky charismatic sensual it is just crazy to see this guy in a very beautiful flowery kimono and he's got one hand stuffed in the kimono and just a, a gun just kind of peeks out. There's just something about it that is so striking. Um, and and you can't have that kind of awe in in A Fistful of Dollars. Fistful of Dollars is a great movie, was, but it's a cowboy movie. Everyone's and I think, got guns, right? Last Man Standing, I think, is Prohibition 20s with right. uh, Bruce Willis. Everyone's got guns. You're in a samurai movie. Dude pulls out a gun in a samurai movie. It is a game changer. And Kurosawa knows it. And the way that he plays it, the way that he frames it is, it's hilarious. It's 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 subtle, but it's also so flamboyant that it's, it's just... It, it's a knockout. This is a person who is totally aware of what they're doing. They're totally aware of what the image looks like to a viewer, and they're having a blast Absolutely. with it. Why don't we move on to high and low? Came out in 1963. It stars our holy trinity for tonight's conversation: Toshiro Mifune, Tetsuya Nakari, and Takashi Shimura, and a whole bunch of other people. But I mean, those are the three we're here for. Uh, it is loosely based on Ed McBain's novel *King's Ransom*, which you mentioned is fantastic. I haven't read it, but uh, the movie is part moral dilemma and part cop procedural. Chris, you want to take it out? 
Yeah, so before we even talk about this, let me take an aside to talk about the brilliance of Ed McBain as an author. So one of the interesting things about Kurosawa is Kurosawa adapts from Western literature oh, yeah. quite a bit, right? He, um, we, we talked about the adaptations so far. Yojimbo, very loosely based on Dashiell Hammett. If you don't know who Dashiell Hammett is, Dashiell Hammett wrote the Maltese Falcon. Uh, we talked uh, about Rashomon, which was loosely based on Tolstoy. We uh, talked about uh, Seven Samurai, which even though Seven Samurai, oh no, uh, was it Akira? A I, I don't remember. At this point, I'm too far gone. Let's yep. only move ahead. Uh, the Idiot, he did The Idiot with uh, Dostoevsky. Uh, there are a lot of other... Uh, Oh, oh my goodness. Uh, we're going to talk about, uh, we're not going to talk about it, but Throne of Blood is, is, is Shakespeare. Uh, the bad, the bad sleep well is Shakespeare. Ron, which we're going to talk about is Shakespeare. Uh, but only once does someone adapt Ed McBain. If you don't know who Ed McBain is, Ed McBain wrote a series of novels, um, about the 87th precinct. It is a series of police procedurals. Uh, they were up until the time of Ed McBain's death there. There has to be at least 30, 40 of them. I've probably read a good 15 or 20. I have a weird thing with things that I love and it actually goes to Akira Kurosawa as well. When I love something really, really with all of my heart i don't devour it so um as much as i love akira kurosawa i have not seen every single akira kurosawa film i as much as i love ed McBain, i have not read every single McBain novel the reason why is because i like to savor them and parcel them out for when i really need them um and this is the perfect marriage of uh a director who i cherish and am savoring adapting an author who i cherish and am savoring so the 87th precinct novels are a series of police procedurals they're some of the best written novels you could ever read uh, and and i would easily put them on a pedestal with like hemingway as far as the way that language is used to convey character to convey story to convey narrative so if you get nothing else out of this do yourself a favor check out the uh, 87th Precinct series from Ed, Ed McBain. This one, King's Ransom, uh, it's it's very, the first half of High and Low is very loosely based on King's Ransom, which is essentially a um, well-to-do executive, in this case for a shoe company, uh, is told uh, that his son has been kidnapped and is being held for ransom. Uh, shortly thereafter, his son comes home, and it turns out that it's not his son who's being held for ransom. It is his chauffeur's son that is being held for ransom. And thus, the conflict comes into play of, my son is safe and sound, my servant, so we're getting back into class play here, which was very much the case of Seven Samurai. And um, I did a little research onto Yojimbo. Actually, it was very much the case of Yojimbo as well at the time that Yojimbo was being created. Uh, Kurosawa was very much talking about um, capitalism and the rise of the bureaucratic mercantile class versus the artisan class um, and, and how post-war capitalism was really affecting the lower classes. Here we have a much more explicit view of that where we have someone who is an executive for a business company thinks his child's being held for ransom, turns out that his servant's son's being held for ransom. What does he do in that instance? So the first half of the movie is very much that, that moral dilemma and how that moral dilemma plays out. But what's interesting about High and Low is that the second half of the movie, the first half of the movie resolves that conflict. And then the second half of the movie really becomes the procedural that the 87th Precinct novels are known for 
And it's just a weird melange of these two styles. And yet they work so perfectly because when you get to the end of high and low, you get a recapitulation of the moral quandary that happens in the beginning of the movie. And it's just, it's a stellar police procedural. It's a stellar kind of paint by numbers. How do you catch a criminal? But at the same time, it's this masterclass of what is my responsibility when I am at this level? What do I owe to the people below me? And what will my conscience allow me and, to do? Uh, and that's it in a nutshell. <laughs> no, that, that's, that's it. That. Like the, the thing that, and, and the, the, it's his servant's son that's held for ransom, but it's also established before that happens that he, um, the executive played by Mufune is, uh, he's basically trying to make a power play to take control of his company. And, and, and as a result of that, he, his, he basically sets up his finances in a way that allow, basically put him at like, basically put him to the margin. Like he cannot do anything with his money it is completely tied up and so the the specific like the quandary isn't just do i pay some money and have my servant done he's basically the choice he's making is do i save my servant's son or do i go bankrupt because he's gonna lose because if he if he backs out if he pays the ransom he's basically his his power play is going to fall apart and he's going to basically lose all the everything he has so he's right and it's an it's an interesting thing there right because they set him up in the beginning as the man of integrity right so to kind of preface this whole thing there's a power play going on at this shoe company mufune is the man who will not sacrifice shoe quality and the rest of his group want to sacrifice shoe quality so they're trying to edge him out so they can make cheap and shoddy shoes and make more money at the same time he is edging them out so he can maintain his integrity so at that point in the very beginning you are rooting for Mufuni a hundred percent this is a man of integrity even though he's edging the other people out he's doing so because this dude will not make a shitty shoe but then that whole thing comes into question when all of a sudden you realize, oh, it's the chauffeur's son who's been kidnapped. Now you have to pay that that money. He falls into this terrible quandary of, I have based from a from a film perspective, you are with this guy because of his integrity. Now his integrity is being called into question because the right thing to do obviously is to pay the ransom but because of everything else that he's done there's now an additional burden on him if he does pay the ransom and that's where the moral quandary comes into play and it makes it so much more complex because of what's happened in the beginning and the, of the film. And, and his ultimate choice to pay the ransom and basically sacrifice his financial everything um actually play not only resolves the first half of the movie but actually ends up sort of inspiring the second half of the movie where the the cops who who note this executives like selfless sacrifice uh decide that they're going to basically dedicate their entire set of resources to finding this guy because we want to do right by the guy who made a hugely uh, like who made a huge decision to help someone else at his own cost it sort of inspires them and like i get that uh, especially in the you know the year of our lord 2017 that like our relationship with the authorities and the cops is not like that this doesn't necessarily isn't a normal thing to expect, but it was very heartwarming to see the police sort of 
come together and be like, all right, this dude, he's sort of setting the example for us in terms of how we need to behave and how we need to think about other people. We're going to follow suit. And then everything else after that, it's like, there's no squabbling. There's no like weird stuff that, you know, arguing or anything. It's just, no, this, this is the thing that's going to get done and we're going to pull together as a team and do it. And that, and I really, yeah, I don't know. Like that's, that's not something that I'm, it felt earned uh, and not like, not cheesy. Like, Oh, like these people are, you know, boring do-gooders. Like it, it felt like, no, this, the, I think he really earned that sort of camaraderie and teamwork within the cops. Yeah. And that's something that is interesting. It, it just speaks to what we bring from a, a Western mentality to in uh, an ostensibly mm-hmm. Eastern film. Uh, even though this is adapted from a Western novel, there is a lot of stuff here that is still surprising to us as kind of Western viewers and, and uh, uh, people of a Western culture. And it's, it's a, it, it's such a great moment. And Shamur, Shimura doesn't have a huge role here. He's kind of like the head detective, um, kind of summarizing the the case. But if 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 it doesn't sound like we're selling this film, the second half really makes the movie. The, the first half kind of acts as a bottle episode, which is why I, I think it's such a stellar film that the, it's it's really two separate movies that somehow Agreed. work really well together. The first half almost. I, I think, and it's been a while since I've seen it, almost entirely takes place in the apartment, in the uh, house yeah, that where sounds about um, right. Mufune, as the shoe executive, lives. And then the second half is the search. And the interesting thing about this, this was, I, I had kind of read up on the on the movie again right before we did this. Um, they call it High and Low. McBain's novel was called King's Ransom because the guy's name was, was King. The Japanese translation is Heaven and Hell. And it's interesting when you look at it from a structural perspective from filmmaking, the whole first half takes place in heaven and like the top of the hill where the executive lives. And without kind of getting into who did this and why they did this, because that does play a huge part into the movie. As the movie progresses, it goes deeper and deeper into the recesses of kind of the Japanese kind of cities and the ghettos to, to, to kind of capture the, 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 criminal and then the movie ends with a confrontation between the criminal and Mufune. Um he he plays uh his name is Mr. Gondo. Right. I think his name is Gondo. And uh they have this kind of confessional between the two of them where the criminal kind of explains why he did what he did. And then it it, it really does bring it all back to this this question of class and this question of moral responsibility. Um and it's it's just a it's a it's it's just a fantastic look of how an Eastern person will take something very Western, very pulpy and craft it to their own ends to make a statement that is totally um, open and 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 ready to be received by any person viewing the movie, regardless of where of what perspective you are viewing it it, it from. And it's one of the few modern films that we'll be talking about. So uh, Kurosawa doesn't didn't often work in a modern kind of milieu, or at least his most popular films were not. His most popular films were um, samurai films and period films, which is why I really wanted to call out both Akiru and High and Low, because they are both very ostensibly modern films for the time that they were filmed. There's also a couple of shots in this movie, I think, that... Um 
I don't necessarily have a huge insight to, but it seemed that they were notable. The Because High and Low has the shot where it's black and white, but there's that pink puff of smoke, right? I don't remember. It's, it's weird because I was looking back and I was kind of like scattering through the film today. I have a, a very specific recollection of hunting through weeds but I don't recall that in the movie either, but that's what and then, sticks with me. And I think the, the reflection of the reflection off the, 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 the kidnappers sunglasses. I remember that being also very striking, almost like yes. this would have been decades before sin city, but almost had that style to it. Um, well, that's one of the interesting things about, about the movie. And I think sin city brings up an interesting parallel. One of the cool things about the split is that the split opens and you find out who the kidnapper is right away. And then, you know, something that the rest of the film doesn't know. So when meetings happen, because there is one part in the movie where the kidnapper meets Mufune because Mufune goes down into the low part of town as as well. You, you, you start to kind of glean things before the police do. And it's kind of interesting the way they do that. And I think one of the things that I do remember is the reflection in the sunglasses. Just there's there's a lot of odd things that go on in that second half that plays very differently than how the first half right. of the movie plays. All right, I think we're up to our last uh, movie, which is Ran. out in 1985 um this was his fourth last movie before he passed away by this point he wasn't really as prolet like he wasn't making as many movies he was mostly active in the 50s and 60s i it sounded like there was some stuff around maybe him falling out of favor or just not being as popular but um previously you had talked about him being able to adapt to widescreen ratios and um by this point in 1985, like most movies were being shot in color. And so I don't, I don't, I don't remember if this was his first color movie, but like there's nothing about watching ran that makes you think, Oh, this is someone who hasn't been shooting in color all the time because this is like a fantastically colorful movie. I, I want to say it's his, might be his second. I was Kagamusha so. before this. Kagamusha was the, the movie that sort of felt like it was a sort of smaller uh, version of Ran, right? Yeah, that's the one with the doubles. Uh, I want to say that that might be his first color film, and then Ron came right after that. In any case, yes. But regardless, he, this is, this is, yeah. So I, I, I mean, right, right, right to your point, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of checking it out. So Ron was 1980, uh, um, Kagamusha was 1980, Ron was 85. So he'd done two films in color and right away it's, it, there's just, there's just, there's nothing to be learned. He yeah, immediately masters color. It's, it's <laughs> so stupid films. just how good he is. Um, this is so i mean this so ran uh, rana is a adaptation of king lear which is uh shakespeare obviously and uh but in terms of the kind of movie that it is to me again my limited 
uh, film experience, to me, this recalls the kind of epics that I would see in movies like Braveheart, but like 10 years before Braveheart came out. Um, it has a there's a scale in terms of like there's the the personal stories obviously but then there's like big huge giant battle scenes with hundreds of people on horseback that like there's and and i've and i've gone back and watched some you know some some of the sword and sandal epics uh uh since then but there's some i'm i am a i am perpetually a sucker for people who just like see and cg is fine but like people who actually spend the money and the time to actually get hundreds of horseback riders to do big huge coordinated uh, army movements and in film battles that way just like with with no trickery with no uh just just like spend the damn money and make it happen like that i this is that kind of movie and it is and again like I think this might have been like in terms of that kind of scale. I think that this is probably his biggest. Is that that does that sound does that track for you? It it, it tracks for me. I, I I was doing a little bit of research while you were kind of summing up the movie. So just in case there are Kurosawa fans who are listening to this and getting ready to take us to task, his first color film was the 1970 film mm. Dodeskaden, which I believe if I it's one that I haven't seen. But uh, is this the one where he filmed it in Russia? I know that he did. So I, I think the last kind of major film he did was Redbeard with Mufune. And then there was a, a kind of a fallow period where he wasn't able to get funding. He did some outside stuff. And I think this might have been one of the ones where he did some outside stuff and then kind of came back again. He was getting financed in part. Ka- Kagamusha was financed by... Uh, hey, George Lucas Coppola. was in on that one too, right? Uh I think so. I know George Lucas, Corsese, and Coppola were all part of Dreams. Uh, and in fact, Corsese acts as um, Vincent Van Gogh in uh, Dreams. But so, but to your point, there had been a bit of a fallow period. And, but by the time he had gotten to Ron, he had most definitely mastered color. One of the interesting things about Ron and the way that it plays upon very, very loosely King Lear in the three sons as opposed to the three daughters in King Lear. Um, they're all represented by different colors. And the uh, the thing that I remember most about Ron, um, I had watched it probably about three or four months ago when we were originally supposed to do this podcast. But uh, the things that kind of strike out to me the most is that just the opening sequence of the hunting of the boar and just how gorgeous it looks and just how open the spaces are but what's really interesting is the way that kurosawa kind of stylistically completely changes his game when we get to the battle sequences he scores it differently he films it differently this is something where if you're not a fan of foreign film because you think it's boring or because you think it's just it's not as intense as american film i defy you to to say that after watching the battle sequence in in Ron. It is it is such an abrupt 180 from what came before it where um I don't remember the music that's being played but all of a sudden it kind of switches to this western classical music. I'm going to try and look it up right now as I talk, but as far as the way that he films it um from what I remember and correct me if I'm wrong John, there's no actual 
um, background noise. It's just the battle is scored completely to music. And it is so it is so graphic. One of the things that I remember is um, uh, I, I don't know how I, I know you have two very young daughters. I, I have one son. He's 10 years old. Um, he's somewhat sensitive when it comes to violence and, and blood. And uh, he sat with me as we watched the, oh. the battle scene from Ron. <laughs> and I was able to kind of say to him, look at this part, when this guy's hand gets ripped off and his arm comes off, he's actually hiding his arm behind his his back J- just to kind of because my son was just appalled by what he was seeing. It is so violent. It is so gratuitous. It is it is something you would not expect from someone who has been considered a master of the form since at least for me, the 1940s. Um, it, it's just it is almost incongruous with the rest of the movie. Uh, Gustav Mahler uh, uh, does that entire that, yeah, section. That that um, that whole battle sequence, which is not the end of the movie. Like there, there, no, it's it's maybe an yeah, hour or so is, into the, the there's, movie. There's right? definitely a climax and a fight that happens at the end, but like the centerpiece of in terms of action actually happens right in the middle of it. It's kind of wild. Um, and so I have a question I wanted to ask. Um, when I, when I, is there any of the sons that you particularly like or dislike? Um, is there one that you identify with the most? I do, and I do identify, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna screw up his name. So let me look it up. But it, it, it it's the one that uh, Saburo. It's the youngest. It, 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 it's the one. Yeah, uh, yeah, Saburo. Yeah, I, I, I mean, because he is the one that. It, it, this is where it plays closest to King Lear. Where, look, I'm not going to flatter you, father. I'm going to tell you the truth because I'm your son and I love you. Um, that That is where I throw my identification. And that's what makes it all the more heartbreaking when you get to the end. Because like I said, this is very loosely adapted from King Lear. It ends very differently than King Lear ends. It ends very much on a downer note. Um, but but Saburo is, is where my heart lies, without a doubt. Um, either Saburo or the fool which is a which is a weird interesting character to kind of talk about as well it's this is at least from the films we're talking about in the films that i can kind of conjure in my head that i've watched from kurosawa there's never been a character like the fool in any of his films either and it's an interesting way to play that and and i suppose we should probably just quickly recap the story for i guess if there's people who don't know king lear um essentially the uh the main the the uh and i did write this down um the the movie is about a a war an aging warlord uh named hidatora uh he wants to <laughs> he wants to retire peacefully and uh he's uh, which is kind of funny g- given that he's established very quickly as something of a of a pretty wrathful tyrant um but basically he wants to split up his kingdom between his three sons uh his oldest son will be in charge and the younger two sons will take each take a castle um but the younger son which uh, the youngest son saburo basically says hey this is a terrible idea you are a shitty father you are uh like or basically you have done so many bad things that no one here is going to stay loyal to you and you're uh this is going to end badly for you and he gets banished and then the rest of the movie is essentially the 
the slow but increasingly fast collapse of this whole kingdom, including the family and the like, the kingdom as a whole, but also the family. Um, I definitely identify with uh, Saburo for sure. The first time I saw, it, I was like, "Yeah, he's the one who gets it. Like he's he he tells his dad the way it is, but is also the guy who actually shows up to defend his father." And then the second time right. around, I didn't dislike Saburo. But the oldest son, whose name is Taro, he's, I found myself, when, we, when I rewatched it for this, uh, with this podcast in mind, I actually found myself more relating to Taro because he is, I mean, all of the decision at the beginning of the movie to split up the kingdom is done by Hidetora, the old guy. But then his oldest son, who did not ask i mean he's he's oldest so this would have happened eventually right but he's not he he's, doesn't really get a choice in the matter he's just said you're now in charge but you also have to completely respect the fact that i am you know there there's not a clear distinction or like like th- there's not a really good transition in terms of leadership between the old guy and his oldest son and so that's the that's that's why he sends right. him away is because even though he's theoretically in charge, all the soldiers and everyone is still loyal to his dad and won't listen to what he says. So he's like, well, I need some space to actually get my, you know, I don't have any credibility or authority with these people because you keep sticking around and uh, and aren't helping by like deferring people to me. And he's still trying to be like, well, I'm not in charge, but you still got to treat me like I'm in charge. So. So, so here's where we, we somewhat differ. I I don't prefer or identify with Taro, but I feel the worst for Taro, uh, Taro, if that makes sense. Right. Because if I'm not mistaken and I'm, I'm, I'm going through now, I'm using Wikipedia to help refresh my memory, but Taro is the one who is married to (laughs) basically like, yeah, Lady Cade, who is essentially the Lady Macbeth of this story. Right, so so he is the one who is Jiro. Oh, she, is the, I, I is fucking hate Jiro. He's a fucking dirtbag. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, but but Taro is completely cuckolded and and just kind of manipulated by Lady Cade, who has to to be fair to the film and to be fair to her character because she's a fantastic character in the movie. She is she she has her own motives for why she's doing what she's doing and those become apparent as well. So this is another great example much like the Seven Samurai where nobody is innocent. Saburo may be innocent and the fool is innocent just from their honesty but um Hidetora who is the King Lear character has done some shitty things and he's specifically done some shitty things to Lady Cade's family which is why she does what she does to manipulate her husband and to um I, this movie is decades oh, yeah. old. We can spoil what we need to spoil. I mean, she basically seduces Jiro and 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 kind of manipulates yeah, yeah. everything to her own ends, and it's a very tragic end. Um, but but again, that's there's something about Saburo who's just he's even when he's at his angriest and his most hurtful, he's still honest. And, and that has always drawn me to him. And and it's what makes the ending so tragic when you see what happens at the end. This is again, uh, 
ladies and gentlemen, Kurosawa does not really work well with good endings. He's not a happy ending kind of guy. Ron does not end well. It is gorgeous. It is beautiful to look at. Uh, it is very intense and emotional and striking and colorful and beautiful. No. It doesn't end well. <laughs> so just bear that in mind and when so you here, watch but, these So films. Th- you're right. It does end poorly. Um, but, oh, and I just want to say... Uh, Right. Well, yes. it doesn't end poorly. It ends yes. wonderfully, but it ends Thank, badly that's a good for the clarification. characters. Involved, um, right? And I just want to say really quickly about Taro that while I was watching it the second, the more recent time, uh, the the idea that um, that like him being sort of like being like his his father sort of like stepping in and not giving him space to sort of like grow and develop and sort of like trying to like micromanage stuff um came at a time when my own father-in-law um was making a lot more visits to our house than he used to um and so at there was a time when i was like yeah i hear you taro that's yeah i feel you um but oh yes lady lady cade so she is the agent of this family's destruction and they definitely frame her as a lady Macbeth type. Um, but, and, and they don't, and they don't without necessarily a lot of sympathy, like they don't really go out of, he doesn't go out of his way to like really dwell on her, her inner life, her, her motivations or anything. She's just this manipulative, um, like very cunning person who, basically manipulates everything so that this will fall apart for this family but then at the end of the movie when she's sort of like she sort of does the reveal of like it was me um and then says you killed my entire family and then forced me to marry your son i was like oh oh okay like it, it it was it that's a way you could do it i guess like it's it's it 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 in that moment she's she's still terrifying to behold but it's it's because i don't think lady Macbeth really gets that that she does she doesn't get that like she this this to me that that i mean again she manages to have everyone killed but (laughs) in that moment she's like oh you could have done a different like there's a there's a different movie you could also do that is just about her saying like basically john wicking everyone Cause she's basically, she's basically John Wick. (laughs) Yeah. So that's really interesting. You just put this in my head. I mean, not that I want to end this, but that is the theme that runs through every single movie. No one is innocent. There are no completely, you know, good, completely bad. If we go all the way back to Rashomon where truth is entirely subjective and we don't know what's true or not. And then we run that through Akiru, where he, where the the sins of his past are not glossed over, to Seven Samurai, where no one is as pure as you think they are at the beginning of the movie, right? To um, to Yojimbo, where both sides are evil and need to be taken care of. To High and Low, where this person is set upon a a moral quandary that is of his own making because of the thing that he's trying to do to edge out his competition to 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 run in in every instance no one is innocent these are all characters that are complex that have 
depth that have sin that have that are that are more complex than you would ever get from from other movies in this time period and and it's such a credit to kurosawa that he knew that all the way back in the 40s and 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 wanted to play with that and was able to play with that in different time periods in different genres in different screen formats and in in black and white and in color he was always interested in that gray area and it's such a remarkable career to look at crime genre, crime uh d- dramas shakespearean adaptations action pictures uh I, I mean completely outside of the scope of the films that we talked about there are things like um there are things like dreams which take on the realm of fantasy there are things like the quiet duel which are much more drama laden um uh uh, this is a guy who could hit every single facet and find something fascinating to talk about. And Ron kind of encapsulate, encapsulates that with, 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 with Lady Kate, that this is, this is an evil dastardly character. But even at the end, when you see these horrible things that she causes to happen, and there's the whole thing with the, with the oh, head shit. being yeah, chopped I forgot about that. And, and, and she's very, she's very, she's very, explicit about when you chop the head off make sure you rub salt on it so it's preserved and i can tell who it is that you killed you know as evil as she is kurosawa saves a moment for her to explain her actions and to show that no one is one-dimensional everyone has these different facets and he is interested in the facets not just in the sides and it, it, it it's i mean if 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 nothing else that is the reason why i fall in love with him and why he is the gateway to so many other foreign films whether it's japanese i think that is cultures. a fantastic place for us to conclude our conversation and our time here tonight Chris, what's next for you, buddy? So what's next? Uh, I would love to keep talking about this shit, <laughs> to be honest with you. I was a film critic for like eight years before I got into music. So anytime you want to do this again with Kurosawa or someone else, let me know. As far as what's definitively next, uh, I write for Nine Circles, uh, W-H-T-T-P, Colin slash slash nine circles dot co. I usually have at least two to three articles a week talking about metal or things that are not metal. Uh, my album Isolated Evolution just released on August 18th. It is available on Bandcamp in digital format or CD. John Petcow had a huge hand in helping me to shape that album. Uh, so that's uh, that's what's going on right now in the future. In October, I have a split coming out on Black and Death Records with Suicide Wraith and some other band I can't remember at the moment. Oh, Uncanny Reality. We're going to be doing two to three songs each. Going to be very lo-fi, aggressive, angry black metal. And then uh, after that, I'm working on a new project, and I am I am pleased to announce this will probably be the first time that I announce it kind of publicly as to what it's going to be. It's going to kind of be a noise kind of rock thing. And uh, John, you are a huge part of that, as well as our buddy Jeremy from uh, Koheleth. So it's going to be my first kind of, for me at least, my first kind of band uh uh collaboration i am so looking forward to that so uh that's going to kind of be the next thing on my plate after the split i'm so looking forward to that and then uh who knows what the what the future will bring i am 
very excited to do a band with you. It is, uh, I, 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 like you, I don't have the frame of reference really for how to do a band, but I'm, it is, uh, it is going to be like the most exciting thing to do a band with, with you and Jeremy. So, uh, that's, what's going to be cool. So in case people don't know, so let's we're already at uh, at least according to my call an hour and 53 uh the reason we worked together was just because we became friends through metalbandcamp.com and then one of the the writers for nine circles who liked both of our stuff said ho when the hell is there going to be a John Chris split, which is when you and I started working together. And we did that split last October where we did original stuff and then covered each other's music, which again, to me, not to toot your horn, you you don't need any more tooting than you already get, but I am so enamored of your ability to incorporate different styles, uh, doom and grind and everything else. Um, into your music it was a thrill for me to kind of learn from you and be able to cover that stuff so the next kind of logical step was to kind of get together and say hey why don't we try a different style of music and do it together and see where it lies so i am super excited to do that and uh for everyone listening to this it's probably going to be coming very late in 2017 maybe early 2018 because john has got a ton of awesome projects on the pipe as well they're going to come first and when he's done with those and he has time for me we're going to collaborate and do something uh to my mind it's going to be totally awesome but uh, I think that this is g- easily going to be the longest podcast I've ever recorded. So I will uh, I will say goodbye and good night for now. Thanks, sir. <laughs>